Now, sometimes Jeff, and I'm sure, I, I mean, I do it as well, most all preachers start sermons with an arresting quote by some famous person. But I don't know that I've ever done this before where I start by quoting the devil. But I was reading a book by Sinclair Ferguson called By Grace Alone, and he described four satanic strategies. Satan uh, fires his fiery darts at us as Christians. If he can't keep you from Christ, at least he wants to weigh you down with stinking thinking. And he does that by planting these bad thoughts in your mind. See if any of these satanic quotations sound familiar to you. Number one, God is against you. Do you ever just kind of feel like that? God is against me. Satan says, you can't really trust him when things are going so badly in your life. Number two, Satan says, I accuse you because of your sins. It's kind of like he says, if you're guilty and you know it, clap your hands. Number three, you claim forgiveness, but we both know there's a day of condemnation coming and it's not gonna go well for you. And number four, with your track record, what possible hope do you have for persevering as a Christian? What hope do you have? It's it's not gonna go well. Just give up now. Well, when these kinds of thoughts just pop into your mind, how do you fight against them? How do you fight against the devil? What does spiritual warfare really look like? Well, some people say we should have specific warfare prayers. I've read books that have prayers that you should pray to fight against the devil. Other people think that you should go to special meetings, special types of church services to get the demons cast out of you. Some people think we should yell at the devil. Well, the right answer is God's truth. God's truth is how we fight satanic lies. The devil fires arrows of doubt into your mind and heart, and we defend ourselves and we block those fiery doubts with the shield of faith. What does that mean? It means we take what we know of God's word and we believe it. And as we believe God's truth, we extinguish the fiery darts of the devil. It's certainly fine to pray, of course. We don't mean to say we don't pray as well when we get these kinds of thoughts. But the word of God is the sword of the spirit. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight is a powerful weapon against these kinds of satanic thoughts. Romans eight is great. The whole chapter is great. When I preached through Romans eight at my church, I said, if this chapter is not your favorite chapter in the Bible now, it will be before we're done. Which sounds like a really bold, audacious statement. I mean, you have a lot of chapters in the Bible. How how can you say this? Trust me, just read Romans 8. (laughs) Romans 8 is great. Certainly there's some good competing other chapters, but 
Oh my goodness, it's so good. And I want to take you to the crescendo, to the big climax at the end of Romans 8, which is 31 through 39. Basically, he's saying we are so secure in Jesus that we just crescendo in praise to God. John MacArthur says he uses a burst of questions and answers to conquer all of our potential concerns. Concerns like the ones the devil throws at us pretty regularly. There are two impossibilities in this Christian triumph song. The first impossibility is the impossibility of any charge against a believer sticking. Okay, that's what we want to look at today in verses 31 through 34. The impossibility of any charge against a believer sticking. The second impossibility is the impossibility of anything separating us from God's love. One of the songs we sang was about that very thing in Romans 8, 35 through 39. But let's focus on 31 through 34, the impossibility of any charge against a believer sticking. Let me read our text. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want to use this passage to answer those four satanic thoughts, those evil thoughts that come against us. I want you to be able to have strength in your shield of faith to fight against the devil's lies. So remember that first evil thought the devil sometimes sends, God is against you. You can't trust him. Well, what's the truth? The truth is in verses 31 and 32. Actually, God is for us. Look again at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what are the these things that he's talking about? Well, it's, it's the whole chapter. But let me remind you of verses 28 through 30. Because Romans 8, 28 is probably... So if Romans 8 is your favorite chapter of the Bible, whether you realize it or not, Romans 8.28 is probably your favorite verse in your favorite chapter of the Bible. So remember Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now we love that verse. Often just kind of pluck it right out of Romans 8 and put it on our coffee mug and, and celebrate how great of a promise Romans 8.28 is. But Romans 8.29 and 30 help us to understand more what the significance of Romans 8.28. What does it mean that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Well, 29 and 30 help us understand that. For those for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what this means is, God uses all things that come into your life, good things, bad things, questionable things, and he's using them to chisel away the stone, kind of like Michelangelo chisels away the marble to produce the great statue of David. God is chiseling away at the rough edges in you to make you look more and more like Jesus. He's put you on a plan so that you would be conformed to the image of his son before it's all said and done. There's an unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future that you are part of. That's what he's saying in Romans 8, 29 and 30. So now we get to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? That's what he's talking about. This is just... It's, it's blowing his mind apart. And so he kind of summarizes it in these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's stating the, the condition for argument's sake. It has the effect of sense. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you go back through Romans 8, There's a number of things that pop up that are potentially against us. The world is under a curse. We live in a fallen world. The world is not the way it ought to be. We're all going to suffer and die. Some of us will experience persecution. There are crazy circumstances that push us to fear and doubt. And of course, our own failures and Satan and his demons, they're against us. The point is not that there won't be adversaries. The point Paul is making here is that none of these adversaries will prevail. None of them will prevail. Now, we're all familiar when you're in a war or on a more mundane level in the area of sports and one side gets a massive advantage over another side. And what a difference that makes. So if you think back to World War II, Japan just wasn't giving up against the allied powers until we developed what? The atomic bomb, right? And when the atomic bomb was dropped twice in Japan, they gave up because we had a massive advantage in the war. If we had dropped one of those in Tokyo, countless millions would have suffered and died. We had a massive advantage and we won. Again, on the more mundane level, you know what it's like to have your favorite basketball team and in free agency, all of a sudden you get this player and that player put together and now we're stacked. I mean, the Los Angeles Lakers didn't even make the playoffs last year, and now they're the the most uh, highly predicted team to win it all this year because now LeBron James has Anthony Davis, and, and that's a huge advantage over the rest of the teams, according to some. Well, what is it like when you have the God of the universe on your team? What is it like when you have the God of the universe on your team? Wow, 
You, you might be thinking, and Satan helps you with these kinds of thoughts, like, yeah, but I'm not so good. Yeah, but my abilities, and sometimes even my efforts, are lacking. No, 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 it's not about you. It's about God being on your team. You have an object of your faith that is outside of you, and therefore your confidence should be unshakable. Now this morning in our equipping hour, Nathan was teaching us about Psalm 23. We didn't get to this verse, but this one's coming up soon. Psalm 23, verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The sheep, you know, would have these big valleys and and shadows that the predators would lurk within, but because God is their shepherd and God is with them, they can have comfort. They can have confidence. This week, our family uh, did the, the bus trip into Denali Park, and no, the mountain wasn't out. But anyway, we had a great day, and it was, a, it was spectacular. One of our highlights was uh, mama bear, grizzly, and two cubs, but then there was a caribou as well. And the mama wasn't going to bother with the caribou, but one of the cubs decided to go for it. And we were on Discovery Channel right then out of our bus. It was amazing. It was right in front of us. We got to see predators and we got to see prey in action. And the caribou got away and it was fine, but it wasn't too, too exciting. But uh, anyway, it was neat. Well, in life, we have, we have shadows. We have death. We have things that make us afraid, even sin and Satan. But God is for you. God is your shepherd. Therefore, you have nothing to fear about anything. You, have, you ought to have no worries about your future because God is for you. Now, sometimes it's tempting to think, well, that sounds nice. And here we are in church where Satan is, is uh, you know, God is keeping him at bay and we're among our Christian friends and we're encouraging each other and motivating each other. But in the real world, that kind of thought, I don't know, is it real or is it not? Well, Paul tells you, verse 32, here's where you need to look if you have any doubt at all. You look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the proof. It's the cross, his very own precious son. Now think about the eternal relationship between father and son. And God the father did not spare his son. You remember the great story we know from Genesis about Abraham being called to sacrifice his son, his precious son, Isaac, the one whom he loved. And he took him three days into the wilderness to Mount Moriah. And he brought him to the top and he, he bound Isaac up and the knife was over Abraham's head when God said, stop. And instead of plunging the knife into Isaac, God provided a ram in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac 
So he unbinds Isaac, brings the ram, and sacrifices the ram instead of Isaac. That's a great story. But at the cross, Jesus was the substitute. God didn't take his son and find a different substitute. Jesus was the substitute for us, for us. And God plunged the knife of his wrath into his son for us. Isaiah 53 predicted this 700 years before it happened. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It was the will of God to crush his son. And he did it for us. In Romans 5, verse 8, it's a a wonderful argument Paul is making where he says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says before in verse six of Romans five, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was the supreme act of love. God did it. He did it. He gave his son for us. You say, well, there was others involved, right? And they did some sins like Judas betrayed him and Pilate unjustly sent him to the cross. That's true. But God superintended those sins to make Jesus a gift, a sacrifice for us in our place for our sins. Again, look at the text, Romans 8, 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, this isn't universalism. In the context, he's talking about Christians, the elect, those chosen by God. But all of us elect were given the gift of Jesus. Horatius Bonar has a hymn that says, what will he not bestow who freely gave this mighty gift unbought? unmerited, unheeded, and unsought. What will he not bestow? He spared not his son. Tis this that silences each rising fear. Tis this that bids the hard thought disappear. He spared not his son. So Paul's logic continues in verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from greater to lesser. 
If a rich man spends a ton of money on the fanciest car around, he's not going to leave it parked by the curb because he doesn't want to spend a little bit of money on gas to get the car to go. Right? I mean, he, he spent so much money to show off his great new car. He's not just going to let it sit there. He's going to drive that thing. Of course, he's going to put a little gas in it. He spent thousands and thousands of dollars on the car. So the same, the same logic applies here. God has spent so much on you. He's given you the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he will also, with Jesus, give you all the little things you need to hang in there spiritually and to grow in your salvation. Of course, he's going to work out all things together for good in your life and his ultimate glory. He gave you his very best, Jesus. Of course, he will give you the rest. He's going to do it graciously. Have you ever gotten a present sometimes and you thought, well, this is a good present, but the guy's pretty grumpy as he gives it to me. So I kind of don't even know if I like it or not. God is not giving you Jesus in a grumpy way. He graciously gave you Jesus. Of course, he's gonna graciously give you all of the rest as well. Think of what God did to Jesus for you. Of course, he isn't gonna let it be in vain. What do you need to grow today? What do you need to grow? Do you need more grace? Do you need some strength? Do you need some hope in your Christian life? How about comfort or endurance? Of course, God is gonna give that to you. He gave you Jesus. He is not gonna start a good work and let it go to waste. Philippians 1, 6 says he's gonna finish the job. So when the devil says God isn't for you, you point to the cross. And you say, of course, God is for me. Of course, he is for me. Who can be against me? So Satan then tries a second evil thought to to knock you down. He says, I accuse you because of your sins. That's actually how Satan rolls. The name devil means accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the devil's nickname is the accuser of our brothers. In Zechariah chapter three, verse one, we see the devil accusing the high priest before God. I've heard the devil's tricks compared to jujitsu. Jujitsu is that martial art that uses the opponent's body weight against them. So if, the, if your opponent is leaning in too far, you grab him and yank. If he's trying to stay back, you shove him, right? So you use their body weight against them. That's kind of how the devil does. Think about the devil's temptations. Oh, it's just small. No one will know about this sin. No one will be hurt by it. You deserve this. God doesn't really care. Has God really said that this sin was bad? So then you take the forbidden fruit and take a bite. And then is the devil there to comfort you? No, not at all. He jams your face in it, doesn't he? You're a hypocrite. 
devil, I was just doing what you, you're a hypocrite. Everybody's going to find out what a loser you are. You've got no basis to talk to anybody about their sin. Being such a big sinner yourself, you deserve God's wrath forever. You blew it too many times. God is done with you. You are so unworthy. Derek Thomas, the pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, has a good answer to these kinds of satanic thoughts. It's worse than you think, devil. If my salvation depends on my consistency, I am lost, but it doesn't. My past, present, and future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's what Paul says for us as well, right here. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So now Paul takes us into the divine courtroom drama. Who's going to bring any charge against one of God's elect, one of his children, those whom God chose to save before time? The ones he talked about in verse 29 that were foreknown and predestined. I suppose in addition to the devil, spiritual enemies try to accuse us. Our own conscience tries to accuse us. And sometimes we don't know where the accusation's coming from. Is this the devil? I just feel bad about my sins. I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I feel like somebody's going to charge me before God and God's going to slam the gavel down and say, I'm guilty. But the answer to these accusations are all the same. It is God who justifies Any accusation about you and your sin are made to God, who is the judge. And God, the judge, says that those who trusted in Christ are declared righteous forever. God is the one who says that. And so if you try to make an accusation against me to God, God is the one who justified me. Go back to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. Paul has established that we're all guilty before God. We all deserve God's wrath. But then in verse 24, he says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's actually an interesting dilemma. To, to ask the question, how can God forgive your sins? You might think, well, God can do whatever he wants to. So God can just forgive anybody, anytime, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, we think of God nice like that, and we think of him as forgiving like that. So of course, God can just forgive anybody anywhere. But that's not really true, because God is also just, and God is also the judge, And a good judge can't just forgive anybody anywhere. That would be unfair. That would be unjust. So how is it possible that God, who is a holy, righteous God, can forgive a sinner like you? The reason is 
God put Jesus forth and God punished Jesus in the place of sinners so that he could offer free forgiveness to you. So God could be both just, it says, and the justifier, that is the one he declares us righteous before him. He's just because Jesus took the punishment and yet God is justifying us, forgiving us, declaring us righteous at the same time. It's amazing. So after God has done that, he is, it, it's, it's taken care of. Satan is accusing you of sins, right? Sometimes you can go to earthly courts and you can get a bad deal, can't you? The judge is having a bad day. The judge is like just really hungry. It's right before lunch and he's about to slam the gavel down. You're like, just wait till you have a good lunch and you're happy again. But he slams the gavel down and you're guilty and you're thrown away. Maybe the judge is good buddies with with the opposing lawyer and they're winking and it's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. God is never like that. He is completely just. And because he punished Jesus in your place and declared you righteous on the basis of Jesus, any accusation that comes to God about you and your sins are completely taken care of. Completely taken care of. You are not guilty before God because of Jesus. So when you feel guilty, when you feel unforgiven, when you feel unworthy, look to God who justified you. Your justification is based not on your performance, not on your Christian growth, not on your consistency. Your justification is based on Jesus alone. So Satan is foiled again, but Satan is not so quick to give up. So he comes back with a third accusation. Satan says, you claim forgiveness, but we know a day of condemnation is coming and it's not gonna go well for you. Well, by now, I hope your your Christian warrior skills are being fine-tuned and you know the answer to this accusation. Nuh-uh, right? That's the answer. There's a day of condemnation coming. It's not going to go well for you. Nuh-uh is the right answer. Look at verse 34. Look at Romans 8, 34. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we're still in the courtroom. Who is to condemn? So the accusations have already come, but now the condemnation is like when the gavel slams down, but there's gonna be none of that for Christians. This isn't to say that we aren't disciplined by the Lord. He's a loving heavenly father. He wants us to do right. Sometimes he sends trials into your life to make you more like Jesus, but that is not the same as God condemning you for your sins. The first verse in your favorite chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. Yes, there's loving discipline of a heavenly father, but there's no condemnation at all because Jesus took it all. So Paul spells out his answer. 
who is to condemn. And it's almost like a Christian creed-like statement. Look, there's four statements in verse 34 that tell us to look to Jesus. Four different ways. He says, look to Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He died. He died. He fully paid for your sins. He paid for the sins that you committed as a little boy or little girl. He paid for the sins that you've committed this past week. He paid for the sins you're going to commit next week. He died. Leon Morris said his death removes the possibility of condemnation. Paul goes on. More than that, he was raised. Jesus' death on the cross was not the end of the story. Paul shows, the Bible shows, that God authenticated the death of Christ by raising him from the dead, proving that it was all effective and satisfied God's justice. He goes on to say, who is at the right hand of God? What does that mean? It means the right hand of God is the place of honor the place of victory. And Hebrews says, you've probably preached on this recently, that when he sat down at the right right hand of God, he was like saying, mission accomplished. I've done all that I need to do. It's over, it's done. Victory has been established as Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. And then he goes on to say, who indeed is interceding for us on the basis of his blood shed for us. Paul Barnett says, Christ, the sinless son, sin bearing son of God. Let me start over. Christ, the sinless sin bearing son of God argues his perfect case on behalf of those who belong to him. It is a case he always wins. In other words, if God the Father ever looked down at you and even had the slightest inclination of condemning you for your sins, he would look right next to himself and see Jesus saying, I died for that. You crushed me for that. That one is covered. There is therefore now no condemnation for that sin because you condemned me already for it. It's incredible. It is incredible. The confidence and the certainty that we can have as Christians. The final effort Satan tries to give, we've actually already answered that as well. Given your track record, what hope do you have for persevering to the end? Well, listen, If it was about me, I wouldn't have any hope. But as we've seen again and again and again, your confidence before God is not in you. It's in Jesus. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you learn about God. And the more you see his character and his holiness and his majesty, the more you see and recognize your own sin. I've sinned in so many ways. I heard one preacher say, I'm the biggest sinner I know. And I thought, yeah, that's right, me too. I'm the biggest sinner I know. Because even though I know a little bit about some of your junk, I know all about my junk from the heart level out. Even my motivations, my failures. And so what hope is there? Well, nothing in myself, but because of Jesus, I have massive hope. 
So if God has become more great as I've grown and I've gone down, what, what I've realized is that the cross is a bigger deal than I thought. The cross is huge. The effect of the cross is massive. You know, those little tracks, maybe you've seen them. You, you try to share the gospel with somebody and you say, all right, you're here and God's here. And see that little gulf in between? Look, there's a little cross that covers that. And that's the bridge that gets you to God. Well, okay. All right. That, that's okay. In, in as far as it goes, but for it to be more accurate, that gulf should look a lot more like the Grand Canyon, right? It's huge. God is so holy and I am so sinful. I think I heard R.C. Sproul say, you have way more in common with Hitler than you do with Jesus. I mean, if you look at the scale of righteous and unrighteous, we're on the Hitler side. I mean, the gulf is huge, but here's the thing. That cross is a bridge big enough for that gulf. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now we're done for today's purposes, but that's only because we didn't have time to preach the rest of the chapter. But just look at it. This is that second impossibility. Nothing, nothing, nothing is gonna separate you from the love of God. Just, Just let's read it. Verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, these are pretty big categories. I mean, the obvious answer is no. Now he's gonna quote from Psalm 44 to say, hey, you know, going through hard things is pretty normal for Christians. As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he answers. So yes, we're going to go through some of these things, but here's the answer. No, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's impossible. It's impossible for any charge against you as a Christian to stand. And it's impossible for you or I to ever fall away from the love of Christ.